Amen. Thank you, Derek. Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. It's good to see you here this morning, and a really special welcome if perhaps you're worshiping with us maybe for the first time today. We're uh, glad that you are here, and if it's your second or third or maybe even fourth time, still glad that you're here, and yes, if you've been here since the very beginning, I'm glad that you are here. So basically, I'm glad that all of you are here. That's what the takeaway is. Uh, as Pastor Paul mentioned, this is, uh, it's an important Sunday, so think about Palm Sunday, as we think about Holy Week, Palm Sunday, really the beginning of Holy Week. And so uh, I'd encourage you, uh, just a reminder, our Good Friday service this Friday at 6 p.m. and Easter Sunday uh, at uh, 10 a.m. next Sunday. There'll be no uh, Sunday school next Sunday. Uh, We have flyers out in the, um, what's that area called? That area out there. Uh, which we'd love for you, that we don't want them just to sit here. So as you do have family and friends, colleagues at work, I'd encourage you to take one of those flyers uh, and pass those out. And uh, this is a great opportunity for us to be in prayer that uh, lives would be changed this week. That's certainly what the Lord is up to. Uh, he wants to change our lives too, amen? And so we'll pray to that end. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Mark as we continue here in our series. We are Mark chapter 11 which is the triumphal entry, as we know it, as uh, Palm Sunday, historically. Mark chapter 11, I'll be reading uh, verses 1 through verse 11. If you're able to, please stand as I read Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Would you join me in prayer? Our great God and Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning is very simple. I pray that you would speak, and I pray that for all of us who hear, that you would give us help to listen. Give us grace to receive your word exactly in the way that we need it, and that we need to hear it. Whether we have been walking with you for many, many years, decades, or whether we are just getting started as your disciple, Lord, our great need this morning is to hear from you, to listen to your voice. And indeed, Lord, we know that 
you are speaking to us today. So give us your grace that we would hear you and that we would respond accordingly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Authors who write biographies usually have a good deal of freedom in how to write about the life of the person that they are seeking to make known. And I'm sure you've read various biographies in the past, maybe of your favorite uh, politician or athlete or actor or theologian. I remember many years ago in university for one of my classes, I had to read two biographies about the same person. It happened to be President Richard Nixon. And what's, what's better than just reading one biography of President Nixon? Zero, two, two biographies of Richard Nixon as part of the class. But here's what was so interesting. In one of the biographies, it spent several hundred pages on his childhood, early life, his upbringing, and hardly mentioned anything at all about his political life. And the other biography I read was almost the exact opposite. Hardly mentioned anything at all about his childhood, his family, his upbringing, but really focused in on really a sliver, an important sliver of his life, basically the Watergate scandal, two years of his life. So one spent hundreds of pages on really 50 years of his life, and another spent hundreds of pages on basically two years of his life. One sped up, the other one slowed way down in other parts. All four of the gospel writers Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they actually do the same thing here in their biography, their written account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Sometimes they speed up, and then at other times, boy, they slow way down. Now, we have seen this in our studies here in the Gospel of Mark. Mark, from the very beginning, the very first verse, Mark 1.1, tells us what this book is all about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then for the 10, I should go this way, for the 10 chapters, the action moves quickly as Mark recounts the life and ministry of Jesus. And so for 10 chapters, remember Mark's favorite word? Immediately, immediately, immediately. The action moves very, very quickly. It's almost like a flyover. But then we get to Mark chapter 11. And then from Mark chapter 11, through to the end of the book, Mark chapter 16, the action slows way down. So a little over half of Mark's gospel, chapters 1 through 10, tells us everything about the life and ministry of Jesus, and just under half of the book, chapters 11 through 16, tells us everything about one week in the life of Jesus. So from the start of chapter 11, to the end of the book, Mark pumps the brakes, slows way down to focus in on the last seven days of the life of Jesus. And so the obvious question is why? Why does Mark change the pace so dramatically here for the last six or seven chapters here, last half of his gospel? Now, to a certain point, all four gospel writers really do this, and all four gospel writers, though their arrangement of the life and ministry of Jesus looks different in all four gospels, but they all talk about Palm Sunday, they all talk about Good Friday, they all mention Easter and the resurrection, all four of them. 
That's not by accident. In a sort of fun little fact, did you know that there are only two gospel writers who actually talk about Christmas? Two of them don't mention anything at all. Two of them do. Now, it's not that Christmas is unimportant. It is obviously important. But what it highlights is that this final week of the life of Jesus is the very epicenter, the very core of our Christian faith. So we slow down. Because the last week of the life of Jesus has immediate importance for you and for me. Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, his rejection, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead are of such importance that Mark devotes almost half of his book to these events, to this one week. Now, we know this week as Holy Week, and all the events of Holy Week Church are designed to display and reveal God's character and his nature. And so if we want to be brought back from our sin, from the power of sin and death, then we need the cross. We need Good Friday. And we need to understand what's going on in the resurrection, Easter Sunday. In fact, we, we need Holy Week. And if, as Mark tells us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we looked at a couple weeks ago, but if indeed that's really the theme, the unifying verse, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, if that's true, then really every detail of this week really matters. And so of all the weeks on the church calendar to slow down, well, this would be one of them, wouldn't it? This would be a good time to carefully consider Christ, to to weigh his actions, This would be the time to make sure that we don't miss any of the details because the details really do matter. Now, I want you to know that I really do try to practice what I preach. So whatever you hear, it's always landed on my heart and I'm wrestling through this for good or bad, and then you get to hear it. So this week I intentionally tried to slow down and really take note of the details that Mark presents us here in Mark chapter 11. And there are many details, many fascinating details, in fact, to this story. But as I was studying and meditating this week, two main details stood out for me. Two that, that, to be honest, both of these details struck me as a bit strange and even a bit odd. And it raised two important questions that I actually didn't anticipate a week ago. But here we go. Two questions. First question, what's the deal with the donkey, this young colt? Because as Mark recounts it, this young colt, this donkey, occupies six verses of this whole triumphal entry. Verses one through three gives us instructions. Uh, Jesus gives instructions on how to go about finding this donkey. Verses four through six, we read of the two disciples who actually carry out the instructions of Jesus and they go and get him this young colt. Six verses on getting a donkey. So what, what's going on with that? What's the point? And here's the second question. This has to do with the very end of this fascinating story. Verse 11, I draw your attention there. The question is, what's really going on in the temple? Verse 11, 
Let me read it. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. Now, that, that also seems a bit strange. I mean, was Jesus just really super tired after a long walk into Jerusalem? So he kind of just looks around, and, and then he leaves. I mean, that's all he does. He enters the temple, he looks, and then he leaves. That's how this triumphal entry ends. Now, doesn't that seem kind of anticlimactic? Like if Hollywood is writing the script here, they're going to turn this into a movie. That's not how it ends. I mean, if Hollywood's writing this, it ends on a high note. All the loose ends are tied up and all the questions are answered and the, and the hero then just rides off into the sunset. Like where's the triumph? It's late, Mark tells us, and all Jesus does is look and leave. So the details matter in this story. So we want to dig a little bit deeper to find out the answers to those two questions. So again, let's start with that first question. What's really going on with the donkey, this young colt? Let me read verses 1 through 3. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. Now again, the context, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And he's on his way to Jerusalem to do one thing, to prove that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so this journey for Jesus represents the calm before the storm, the storm being his rejection, his suffering, his betrayal, this brutal crucifixion on the cross. Now, Jesus knows exactly who he is. He knows what he's about to do. He knows his mission, even though many in the crowd on this day, and even more, as we look about the crowd in Jerusalem five days later, they didn't understand. But Jesus knows exactly what he's about to do. He knows the mission that is in front of him. And in fact, in yet another important detail that Mark gives us is that Jesus travels directly or intentionally through by way of the Mount of Olives. And, and, and in, in fact, and that's a deliberate, it's deliberate on Jesus' part because he's actually fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. We read in Zechariah 14, verses 4 and 5, that indeed the Messiah will do what? He will come by the way of the Mount of Olives. Now, rabbis in the first century understood that. They looked at that passage and they said, yeah, that's how the Messiah is going to come. That's how the true king's going to come. He's going to come by the way of the Mount of Olives. There's no, there's, no, uh, there's no disagreement there. So Jesus intentionally travels to Jerusalem. How or where? By way of the Mount of Olives in fulfillment of that prophecy. But I want, uh, what I want you to notice is his means and mode of transportation because he travels, on, of all things, a young colt, a donkey, in John's account, he just simply calls it a young donkey. Now, notice the instructions that Jesus gives to his two disciples. Now, we're not told the two disciples, but Jesus essentially says to them, I want you to go into this town. Here's the address. You're going to find a donkey. Untie the donkey. Bring it back to me. And if anyone asks what you're doing, just tell them I need it, and I'll return it as soon as possible. Seems pretty straightforward. But isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't tell his disciples, those two guys, to say anything to the owner of the donkey. 
He just says, just be prepared because people might actually ask what you're doing. Like when they think that you're stealing the donkey, here's what you need to say to them. Tell them what's going on. So it'd be a little like the President of the United States bringing two Secret Service agents uh, near to him and saying, look guys, you know this is Inauguration Day, so here's what I need you to do. I need you to go outside the Beltway, here's an address in Maryland, here's, uh, you're going to find a black Mercedes parked in this guy's garage, and you need to hotwire it and bring it back to me. And, and by the way, if this guy's friends, neighbors ask, like, why are you stealing his Mercedes, just tell him the president needs it and I'll get it back to him as soon as I can. That's a bit strange, isn't it? But that's essentially what's happening here. And that's what we read in verses four through six. These two disciples, in obedience to Jesus, they go, they find this colt, they untie it. Some of them actually see what they are doing and they ask them, what are you doing untying the colt? And what do they say? Verse six, well, they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. I find that very, very fascinating. Meaning at one point, those guys around there, as they're like untying the donkey, they're saying, you can't steal that donkey. What, what do you mean? You, who said you could take the donkey? And if you're those two disciples, don't you think you're kind of looking at each other thinking, man, did we get this right? Like, did we get the right donkey, Peter? You, you, you know, we don't know it's Peter, but we know it's Peter, right? We just do. Are we sure we got the right instructions? Now again, if this is inauguration day for the president, just understand what's going on here. The focus is, it's not on the ceremonies or the festivities and the photo ops and the swearing in. No, if this is inauguration day for the president, the focus up to this point is on the black Mercedes that the president's gonna ride in. Is it gassed up? Did we get an oil change recently? Does the heater work? Is there air in the tire? And so again, this is one of those details, brothers and sisters, when you read the Bible, it's, it's easy just to kind of skip through that, pass it on, and you think, well, maybe, I don't know, I'm not quite sure what's going on, maybe it'll be solved at the end. But Mark here devotes six verses, more than half of this triumphal entry, to the circumstances of these two disciples procuring this young donkey for Jesus. Now, we call this the triumphal entry. My Bible has that as its heading. Yours probably does as well. But, it, you know, that's not divinely inspired. The title isn't. But we only have three verses on actually the triumphal entry. So, so maybe a better heading for this would be something like the, the triumphal procurement of this donkey. Or if you just like a more simple heading, Peter steals a donkey for Jesus. Because that's what's going on here. Now, how do we make sense of this? We need to understand the symbolism here. And there's a lot of symbolism. Certainly throughout the Bible, there's a lot of symbolism in this text here. And we use a lot of symbol. Symbolism was, there's a lot of symbolism in the first century. We, we use all kinds of symbolism here in the 21st century. They're important in our culture. If, if companies, large companies, want to make a big donation to charity, what will you see? Oftentimes, well, you'll see Maybe the picture on TV, you'll see a, a big, large check and five people holding that check in front and smiling for the cameras. It's, it's symbolic of generosity. We don't really think that they're going to try and take that check to the bank and try and cash it. 
No, it's a symbol. And when a new building is built, maybe a church or, or a hospital, what's the first step usually? Well, it's a groundbreaking ceremony. And so you see one guy in a suit who's probably never handled a shovel in his life before, but he puts the shovel in the ground and everybody around him, all the construction workers and the guys who actually do know what they're doing, they're just standing around. But the guy puts the shovel, or puts the shovel into the ground and he digs up dirt. It's symbolic, right? It, it means a new building is going to be built. So the symbolism is important here in this text. Here's, here's what's going on. Here's the symbolism of the donkey. The donkey's colt is fit for a king. Kings ride donkeys or the colt of donkeys. That's what Jesus is doing here. And there's a whole lot of Old Testament scripture here that we need to be familiar with that, that undergirds what's going on here. So 1 Kings chapter 1. It's an important text. It deals with the succession of King David. Who's going to follow King David to the throne? And if you remember some of that story, all his sons are vying to be that rightful heir. Solomon will be the next king. Okay, step one. But then we read in 1 Kings 1, chapter, verse 33, of the process that will take place. Solomon is going to be coronated as king. But how's he going to get there? What is his means of transportation, 1 Kings 1.33, while David says, he will ride in on my mule. In other words, my donkey. Kings, rightful kings, ride colts. Years after that passage in 1 Kings 1, we read of uh, another king, a greater son of David, who will come. And Matthew, in his report of this triumphal entry, Matthew quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, verbatim. When he recounts this, Zechariah chapter 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So again, the, the king's mode of transfer, transportation is a donkey. Now, one of the things that we really have to realize, and I think this is, this is confession time, one of the things I think we have to all admit is that Jews in the first century knew their Bibles a lot better than most of us know ours. And they didn't have internet, they didn't have iPhones, they didn't have Bible apps to help them. They had the Torah, but they memorized it and they learned it and it was passed down orally from one generation to the next and so they understood this. So when they would read a passage like Zechariah 9.9, they were like, yeah, that, that's how things work. The Messiah, the true king, is going to ride in on a donkey. And when that happens, yeah, we need to take note of that. We should be aware of that. And so what Mark is making clear here is that Jesus is in complete control of everything that happens on this day and everything that will happen on what we know as Holy Week. He's in complete control. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and sending his two disciples to get that specific donkey. He knows exactly what he's doing when they bring that donkey back and he sits on it. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing when he begins to, to ride that donkey into the very center of Jerusalem. He knows exactly what he's doing when, when he rides that donkey into the very center of opposition and conflict, ultimately to his death. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so in riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus is he's doing two things. Number one... He is submitting himself 
to the redemptive plan of God the Father to bring about salvation for sinners. He is submitting himself. That's why he, he was born Christmas. That's why he lived a perfect life, completely righteous. This was what it was all about, this last week of his life. And number two, he's declaring that he is the true king. The donkey's colt is fit for him, a king. And Jesus here is letting everybody know the Messiah is here. Your king has arrived. That time is now. And so the point of the colt is that Jesus is claiming to be king. And that's the point of why we have such detail about this, is that Mark wants to make sure that his readers then and all of us, as, as we, we read this account, that we are to be assured, that we are to be 100% guaranteed that, yep, Jesus is the true king. There's no other. Now, most Americans don't have a problem with Jesus, and that is kind of the problem, isn't it? I mean, nobody's more misunderstood than Jesus, the true king. It's fine, we say, you can take him or leave him. You can love him or hate him. You can worship him or reject him. You can ignore him or criticize him. You can basically do what you want or you cannot do what you want with Jesus, but whatever you choose, just make sure that it doesn't harm anybody else. And so for many, in fact, the majority of Americans, Christianity is basically a really good self-help program. If I follow Jesus, then Jesus, what will you do for me? Will you give me that job? Will you, will you give me that wife or that husband? Will you take away my loneliness? That's what it comes down to. And still others just think you don't have to be all that concerned about Jesus at all because Jesus doesn't really concern you at all. And brothers and sisters, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, nothing in all the world. There's there's no one more important in your life. There's no question, there's no decision that you'll make more important in your life than what are you going to do with this Jesus? I mean, what are you going to do with Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? I mean, if that's false, if that's just bunk, well, then go ahead and just keep on living as you are. There's no need for you to change. You got things going as you want it to be. There's no need to repent of your sins. There's no need to die to yourself. You can still be king or queen of your life. But if Mark 1.1 is actually true, here's the beginning of the gospel, if Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the true king, then his claim on your life and mine is total. It's absolute. I mean, if if he really is the long-promised king, the hope of all the ages, the one who has come, the king who has come to, to rule and to reign and to redeem sinners from their sin, then you, you can't really be half-hearted about him. There, there's not really a middle ground. And so if you're trying to keep one foot in his kingdom and one foot ruling your own, it's just not going to work. It's never going to work like that. So you've got to stop trying to live a double life. And instead, the call here is to surrender to the true king. That's how life's actually going to start making sense. Now, many in the crowd this day understood that. 
Many were devoted followers of Jesus, but many were not. Most commentators agree, at least reputable commentators here, that the the crowd that was following Jesus here in this triumphal entry is largely made up of Galilean peasants. And I I mentioned that to make this point, that those are largely different then than the crowd on Good Friday, just a few days later, that are shouting, crucify, crucify him. It's just simply not the case that those who, as we'll see, waved palm branches and shouted Hosanna were the same ones, their hearts so fickle, we probably all heard sermons like that before, Uh, Frankly, they just get it wrong. That's not. Two different crowds of people. So some here understood exactly what was going on. They understood the significance. And their response is what we actually would expect. Notice what they do and what they say. First, what do they do? They threw down their cloaks. This comes from 2 Kings 9, verse 13. Jehu is made king over Israel, and we read, Then in haste every man... Of them took his garment, put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Now, you don't throw your cloaks down for anybody or just for nobody. You do that for a king. You do that for royalty. And that's what's happening here. So it's really the equivalent of kind of rolling out the red carpet. That's what's going on. Now, notice what else they do. They wave palm branches. Palm branches was a symbol of Jewish uh, victory, really of Jewish nationalism. 200 years earlier, there was a a king, Judas Maccabeus. He defeated the Syrian army. What did he do? Well, he rode into Jerusalem and he was to, to rebuild the temple and the people. Well, what did they do? Well, they waved palm branches, ivy branches, and they sang hymns of praise. And that's really the equivalent of, uh, you know, our 4th of July parades. What I mean, I'm not American, but what do Americans do? You wave the American flag, right? That's what's going on here. It's, it's very, very similar. I mean, every culture has this kind of symbolism. Now, notice what they said. Verse 9. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna simply means save or save us. And there's an urgency. Save us now. Like, not later, Like the the need is right now. Save us now. And this is part of uh, what's called the Hallel Psalms, the Hallelujah Psalms. That's where we get that. Psalm 113 to 118. There's a set of five Psalms there that all have this as their focus, these Hallel Psalms. The the, the Jewish pilgrims, these peasants, would, would sing these as they went to Jerusalem on the major feasts every year. So these were very familiar chants, very familiar songs that they would sing on, well, what amounted to a road trip. Summer's coming. We're probably going to go on some road trips. What do we typically do? It kind of depends on how many young people you have in the car. I get it. But a lot of times, what do we, well, we just turn on some music, right? The equivalent here is instead of, obviously they couldn't do that, but they would sing these songs, And they do that antiphonally. That's a big word. You know what that means? Back and forth. They would just do it back. So so one side, there'd be two groups of people. They would say, Hosanna, save us. And the other group would respond and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they just go back and forth for 17 miles all the way to Jerusalem. I mean, the whole experience would have been breathtaking, wouldn't it? To hear that, Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we're not going to walk 17 miles this morning. 
but I do want you to get to the sense of, of kind of what that would look like. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to split you right here. You guys can determine which side you want to be on. All of you folks here are going to say, Hosanna, save us. And all of you folks here are going to respond, and you're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you need to practice that? Because that's a lot. You can do it. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ready? One, two, three. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is he who comes. Good. One more time. So if you do that for 17 miles, things kind of settle in, don't they? Like you get it. You're starting to actually understand that. So that's what's going on here. And so what we have here with the crowds saying that and responding and the palm branches and Jesus riding in on a donkey is really a parable. It's an enacted parable for these people right in front of them. And it's all very public. So the followers of Jesus are saying, he is the rightful king. He is the true king. And again, it's all very public. So there's nothing secretive here. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, which by the way, the city, because of the festival and Passover, five times the amount of people are in Jerusalem. So the city is just bursting at it seems. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, and everybody knows that he's riding in as king. In fact, Jesus makes sure that everybody knows that he's there, that he's just guaranteed that everybody could see that he is the true king. And what he also guaranteed is that five days later, everybody there, if they had eyes to see, would see this king die on a cross for sinners. King rides in on a donkey, the true king. To that second question, and this will be briefer, verse 11, well, what's really going on in the temple then? I mean, with everything that we've just learned, everything we've talked about here, does it not seem just kind of strangely anticlimactic here that Jesus simply walks in, he enters the temple, he looks, and then he leaves? I mean, he is the true king, which makes even this last verse just even a little bit stranger. I mean, the king should have a coronation, Uh, For this king, shouldn't the heavens open up? Shouldn't the angels be rejoicing and singing? Kind of like at his birth? But as Mark records it, none of that happens. There's no fanfare. There's no publicity photos. No photo ops. Jesus is away from the crowds. In fact, we're led to believe everybody has gone home. His disciples are probably hanging out outside. It's late. Jesus enters the temple. He looks around then leaves and he comes back the next day. The the phrase there, the key phrase there in verse 11 is he looked around. And that that phrase is actually, uh, there's a lot going on in that phrase in the original language. It doesn't mean that Jesus just entered and kind of how you and I would enter a building much like this and we kind of look around, we don't really see much and then we just say, well, I guess everything's fine, we'll come back. That's, That's not what's going on here. This phrase really implies that he is the owner who has come to what he owns to do an inspection. And so the owner of the temple has come home. And the owner of the temple is looking around his temple to make sure that everything is as he intends it to be. 
So church, the symbolism here, it's not so much, in fact, of what Jesus does in the temple. It's simply in going to the temple. That's the symbol. And we read that and we pick that up from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi says, in the last days, the Lord God will come back to his temple, and he will come back to his temple to judge and to purify his people. And so at the end of time, God has said, I will come back to renew and purify my people, and Jesus, in simply entering the temple, at this point, Jesus is saying, that's what I'm doing now. Jesus is doing what God had said he would do. Jesus enters the temple. He looks around. He inspects it. And as the owner, he's saying, this is my temple. This is my place of authority. I have come to claim ownership of this place. And so certainly Jesus will start his cleansing and purifying work in the temple. And he will end his purifying and cleansing work on the cross. Now, he didn't really look all that impressive riding into town on a donkey. Certainly, there's a humility there. Roman generals rode in on war horses, and there was all kinds of pomp and circumstance, and there were festivals that took weeks and weeks. That's not Jesus. He's humble, and he comes in peace to make peace with a holy God for unholy people like us. And so when Jesus enters into the temple and he inspects it as his owner, understand what's going on. He doesn't even have to say a word. But when Jesus enters into the temple, he inspects it, and as owner, he's basically throwing down the gauntlet to his enemies. He's just fired the first shot. He knows exactly what he's about to do. He knows his mission. And what so many in the crowd didn't pick up on, they didn't see it. And especially those five days later, was at the end of that week, the temple would be torn down. Everything that they held dear, everything that they treasured would be irrelevant. Because in God's eyes, a new center of worship would be established on Jesus himself. Jesus will now be the focus of people's praise and adoration and worship. That's why the Apostle Paul, thinking about this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, he can say, because at the name of Jesus, what's going to happen? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is, in fact, Lord. So do you see what's going on here? The time has come. There's no more messianic secrets. If you've been with us in our studies in the book of Mark, so often we've read, the time is not right. Jesus says, he heals somebody and says, don't tell anybody. And typically what happens? Well, they tell people. Hard to keep that silent. But but it's it's that secret. The time is not right. Now the time is right. There's no more time for secrets in that sense. The time has now come. Jesus has just gone prime time. Jesus just went big time. The king has come, and everybody who has eyes to see knows it. So what does all this mean for us? What are the implications 
because Holy Week has incredible implications, beginning here on this Palm Sunday through Good Friday and certainly to Easter Sunday. Two implications for us. First, Jesus claims to be king, claims to be Messiah, Lord of his temple. It is a remarkable and astounding claim to authority. Jesus says, I'm king and I'm Lord, and he's doing it very publicly. So he's not saying to each of us, well, I'm I'm Lord of your private prayer life, yes. I'm Lord on Sundays, or I'm only Lord in public. No, he comes to each one of us this morning and says, look, I am king over your public and private life. You can't have me in one area and not have me in the other. So if you're my disciple at church on Sunday, well, you're still my disciple Monday through Saturday at work and whatever you're doing. If I'm not your Lord in public, Jesus is saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really not your Lord in private either. So when Jesus comes to declare his kingship, brothers and sisters, he does it over every detail of your life and mine, public and private, internal, external, outward actions, interior motives. That's the kind of king that he is. Jesus demands full allegiance and complete surrender if we're going to follow him faithfully as his disciples. And so the question then is, well, have you made Jesus your sovereign king? Have you really done that? Or where are you holding back? In what areas of your life are you still saying, you know what, Lord, yes, I know you're the sovereign king. I know you rule. But, but there's a certain corner of my life here that I'm just going to keep to myself. I'm not really ready yet to give you complete control. I'm still going to hold on to this. I'm not ready, Lord, to, to move all my chips into the center. Have you take over? Take over on these areas that I need, Lord, but I'm going to hold something back. If we really think about this, this is pretty convicting. We have a family calendar, which basically other than the Bible, keeps our life somewhat sane. And so it's pretty big, because I got a lot of kids. And uh, so on that, I mean, we just have stuff written in there, like activities and dates and appointments and all of the stuff, including like church stuff. So it's all on this big calendar. But I'm sure you have something similar. You guys are probably way more technologically advanced. You don't have the old school. You got to like on your palm, your, your iPad or something, which is great. The point is, if a, friend, if a non-Christian friend of yours looked at your account, just your weekly schedule, what conclusion would they arrive at? If they just looked at all the activities and the priorities, would they be able to say, wow, you're, you're investing time and energy in things I'm not doing. I see you're going to home group. I see you're serving this. You're making a meal for somebody. You're, you're doing things that I'm not doing. Wow, there, there really is a difference. You're, you're prioritizing different things. Or would they just look at your calendar and say, oh, that's full, you're busy, just like me. It's a rat race. I mean, if Jesus is king, he should have something to say about our weekly schedules, doesn't he? And our calendars, and what is important. I mean, it's one thing to profess with your mouth. It's another thing to say, you know what, Lord, you are. You're king over my time. You're king over my schedule. You're king over every part of my life. Here's the second thing. 
Jesus is a different kind of king. He's a different kind of king. He subverts the ideas that people have about him as king. Again, many in the crowd this day, they're waiting for what? Overthrow of Rome, for a political intervention. We need to free Israel. We're going to restore the kingdom of David, Jesus. You can do that, right? And Jesus says, well, yeah, I can, but that's not why I'm here. I am going to set you free, but it's not in the way you think. Jesus says, I'm bringing the cleansing and purifying judgment of God to his temple. Brothers and sisters, where does that judgment actually fall? It falls on Jesus. I mean, that's the truly radical thing about Jesus as King and Messiah. Jesus comes and brings the judgment of God, but instead of doling it out on people who actually deserve it, you and me, it falls on Him. He takes it on Himself. The King dies for sinful subjects, as we are. Mark 10, 45. He came not to be served, but to serve to take God's wrath upon Him so that we might have life. I mean, so you you understand this. Jesus is the King of the universe. He's unrivaled, unparalleled. But the way that He would reveal His kingship, His rule and reign is how? through suffering and dying on the cross. I mean, we'll learn in a couple weeks, Mark chapter 13, Jesus has authority over everything. There's nothing that Jesus can't do. He can do anything, yet he willingly takes the punishment that we deserve, the judgment of God against us for our sins on himself. Who else is going to do that? Is Is there somebody else that loves you more than he? Can you find another Savior better than Jesus? You can look. You'd rather put trust in your money? It's going to save you. You'd rather put trust in your really good marriage or or your really great job? Those are false saviors, brothers and sisters. There's only one true savior. He's a king like no other. Now get this. He demands full allegiance. Yes, he does. But he knows that our hearts are dark with sin, and we can't do it, even on our best days. We can't obey as He commands. So here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus commands our obedience, but He dies to secure our forgiveness when we can't obey. He commands our obedience, but dies, sacrifices His life to secure our forgiveness. What great love. I mean, how much does Jesus really love you? He can't do anything more to show you that. He commands and He cares. He demands and He dies. That's the heart of the gospel. He's the king who has all authority and He chooses to suffer and die on a cross so that you and I might live. This is the kind of king that you want to worship, not just on Holy Week, but every day. This is the kind of king that you want to bend the knee to. He motivates us to bend the knee to him. Let's pray.
as we pray, I want to speak to maybe three groups of people here. So your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Some of you here may never have heard this good news before. Maybe you're hearing about this King Jesus for the very first time. You've never really submitted your life to him. Maybe you didn't know about him. You've never accepted the sacrifice of Jesus as your suffering king. I plead with you this morning to repent. All that means is to turn from your sins, to turn to him and be saved. Because King Jesus gave his life to free you. And that may be just a, a very, very simple prayer. Lord Jesus, I, I, I confess my sins. I, I can't save myself. I confess that I've tried. But Lord, I want you to be my king. Please rule in my life. There's a second group of people here. Maybe you've already prayed a prayer like that. You, you have a relationship with Jesus. But for whatever reason, it could just be life circumstances. Maybe it's just a really busy season. You understand. You, you get the sacrifice on the cross that he's made for you, but you're still wrestling. You still don't accept his sovereign rule in your life. You say, yes, Jesus, you're my savior. Thankful for the cross, but functionally, it kind of more seems like it's just my ticket out of hell. You, you more or less want Jesus as your sacrificial lamb, but, but you're not really all that interested in taking him as your king. And Jesus comes to you, friend, and he says, I want all of you. It just doesn't work to take Jesus as your, your sacrifice, your lamb, but not as your savior and your king. So if that's you, I, I would invite you to, to humbly submit every part of your life to him. There's a corner in your heart and in mine that maybe you have been holding back. It's a new relationship, whatever it could be, money, time, schedule. Maybe you're just thinking, Jesus, you, you take the spiritual things, but I'm in charge of things on planet Earth. And right now, I just need you to get me through a tough time. I need to graduate, I need to get a job. But after that, I promise I'll be back in touch with you when things cool down. Will you, will you really take Jesus as your sovereign king? Bend the knee to him this morning. It simply won't work to try and fit Jesus, King Jesus, into your life. Now you must begin by bending the knee to him, surrendering, and then you'll begin to live. And finally, perhaps you're here this morning and you've been following Jesus for a good while. But if you're really honest, the, it's become more of a grind. Following Jesus has become more about staying away from the really big embarrassing sins and just keeping the rules. You understand, he, yep, he commands your allegiance. But maybe the missing piece is that you actually don't get his great care for you. So yeah, your Christian life has amounted to God demands and I fail, miserably sometimes. Maybe, maybe you don't slow down long enough to really hear the voice of the Lord. 
Maybe you're so burdened by the cares of this world. Maybe it's just some really bad theology that says, look, I need to do my part, and then Jesus will do his to you, a weary pilgrim. The gospel says you can't do your part, and God knows this. And in his great love for you, Jesus was faithful and always will be faithful to do his part. So turn to him today. You know the sovereignty of his rule, yes, but it's been far too long that you've tasted the sweetness of his love. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good to you. He came to serve you because he loves you. And live in light of that gospel truth, the reality that in his grace, he has set his love upon you for all eternity. Heavenly Father, you know where every person is this day. You see into our hearts. You know and you hear every prayer offered to you this morning. Lord, wherever we may be at, would you draw us to yourself, I pray. Give us eyes to see this day and this week you, the true king, ruling and reigning in our hearts and in our lives, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This triumphal entry is, well, there's nothing ambiguous about it. Jesus throws down the gauntlet, declares that he's king. With his arrival, the die is cast. There's no turning back. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world will now be slain in real time and space. The king, the long-awaited promised king, has come to cleanse and purify us from our sins and to redeem us for himself. That's the good news.